and thank you so much for tuning in to Stable Connections, the podcast. Today's episode is with Terry Church, and she talks to us about her experience going to Germany, her journey with Tom Dorrance, and some insight on land management. Hope you enjoy. Stable Connections is sponsored by Change Your Lead. Change Your Lead is made up of a group of licensed clinicians and equine professionals who incorporate horses into mental health treatment and wellness offerings. They currently provide adjunct psychotherapy services to agencies in the Greater Bay Area that want to add an equine component to their existing mental health services. In addition, they facilitate workshops and mini wellness retreats for those looking to take time for themselves in the presence of horses. Please visit changeyourlead.com to learn more. Stable Connections is sponsored by The Equine Creative. The Equine Creative is a full-service graphic design company specializing in logos and branding for equestrian entrepreneurs. With illustrations that honor your heart, your horse, and your hustle, let's outfit your business the way you'd outfit your horse. Please visit www.theequinecreative.com to learn more. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and I was the daughter of a very successful fashion designer and uh, grew up in a whole lifestyle that was completely foreign to every cell in my being. I am not a city person. My mother and my sisters all made great use of my dad's talents and wore his designer dresses and all that. And all I wanted to do was be out at the barn, mucking. Getting dirty. With the horses. Yep. Cool. And then so how long did you stay down there and where was your journey after that? I stayed down there through high school and I moved away when I was 17. And I actually went to Sonoma State for a year and then moved down to Santa Barbara. Okay. And what were you studying when you went to Sonoma State? Um, just general. I didn't know why I wanted to go to college. It was just something that was expected of me. But there was something about being up here. You know, I always felt like it was interesting that I ended up here again. But there was always something about it that felt like home up here in Sonoma County. And what brought you to Santa Barbara? It was a uh, kind of a horsey place at that time. This was in the late 70s. And so I found my first job when I was still pretty young, teaching kids how to ride horses. And yeah. so how long did you stay in Santa Barbara? Uh, 14 years. 14 years. Yes. Okay. So you had a life down there. I had a life down there. And did you finish school down there as well? I went to other colleges down there. I did a independent study course through Antioch College West. And I went there. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow, small world. It's a really small school too, so that's a really... Yes, well, my mother went there. Cool, and so it was, it's a liberal arts school. Mm-hmm. Did you have like a an emphasis on anything there? My self-created major was called the art of expression. <laughs> so, okay. Did you end up graduating? Uh, no, I never did. So I've had the equivalent of probably more than four years of college, but never got, never, because what I ended up wanting to do was work with horses. And so I ended up uh, eventually putting my horse on a plane and going to Germany for a year for training. Oh, wow. And how did that experience come about? I became a serious dressage rider. So I I started off kind of into hunters, 
and then was always really fascinated by dressage and so started working with different trainers in the Southern California area, did a lot of showing in LA, and my trainer from Germany, well, a man who became my trainer, came over here to do clinics like two, three times a year. And so I would do clinics with him, and he invited me to come over to Germany, and I got a grant from ASMUS, it's a USEF grant. And then I also got a loan from my dad and flew my horse to Germany for training. I was very ambitious, wanted to go to the Olympics, so this was, I thought, my ticket. Yeah, and how old were you at the time? I was 30. 30? Yeah, so this was in 1984. And what about this trainer and this experience drew you to it? I felt like he was really exacting. The Germans, you know, have always been sort of at the top of the game in, in dressage in terms of competition. It turned out to be a big wreck for me because my horse was a really talented but highly sensitive thoroughbred. And after a year, his mind was basically blown because dressage, especially in Germany, is really very militaristic. It's a very harsh uh, environment. I was working there as an apprentice, so I was getting up at six and mucking out 40 stalls with the other apprentices every day, riding five horses a day. And that was six days a week from 6 a.m. to 10 at night. And I was exhausted and my horse was exhausted and fried. And not the good kind of exhausted. Yes, exactly. Even though I'm glad I went, I'm glad I had the experience, it really put a dash in my Olympic dreams. I didn't have a lot of money and I wasn't going to keep borrowing from my parents. So that sort of brought me to this place where I was in between a rock and a hard place. But it was because of that that I ended up getting to meet and work with Tom Dorrance for about 10 years. And so that completely transformed everything about the way, not only the way that I work with horses, but my life, everything about it. So did you recognize the burnout while you were in Germany and that's what influenced your return? Yes, but at that time I was still sort of driven by my will to be in denial and not give up. I can be very strong-willed and very tenacious and it can get in my way sometimes. (laughs) And so I had to literally just run into a brick wall and just be completely torn apart in every way, emotionally, mentally, physically exhausted before I had to, you know, was able to say to myself, look, you know, if this is what I have to do to ride dressage and to win, I'm not doing it because this is just too horrible. Do you think that a part of the recognition was the horse not being able to keep up? You think you would have kept going if it wasn't for that? No question. I've, you know, fortunately now, I had a horse that would not submit, just would not. And now I feel lucky because of that at the time. I thought, wow. Mm-hmm. And so you came back, and how did the Tom Dorrance opportunity come about? I was um, had a friend that lived in Carmel Valley, and I was um, going to just take a couple days off from work. I had moved up here by that time and was doing a full-scale training business. Up here is Sonoma County. Yes, Sonoma County, yes. (laughs) You know, I had a full line of horses in training and working six days a week. And this was going to be your your job was going to be horse trainer? Yes, absolutely. So I knew knew that 
actually when I was two years old. I knew that I would eventually, that's what I'd be doing. So that's what I was doing. And I took a couple days off, drove down to visit another horse friend of mine in Carmel Valley. And she said, oh, you came down just at the right time because I'm having Tom Dorrance come and work with my two stallions. And I said, who's he? Yeah, I was going to ask if his name was as big as it is now. No, not especially not in the dressage world. My right. goodness. I, I had heard about these guys who had the ability to take wild horses and, you know, work with them and train them in, in a day. Uh, but I had never actually, you know, gone to a clinic or searched any of them out. And so... Yeah, it wasn't really your, that wasn't your goal. Your goal no. was Olympics. Your yes. goal was dressage and working up the levels. So. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so you went to a clinic, it sounds like. Well, I went to a private event at her house. She had imported these uh, two stallions from Germany who were really pretty unruly. And so I watched Tom and he had a young gentleman that was helping him, Joe Walter. And so... I watched them for three, four hours in that afternoon take these two stallions who the owner, my friend, would not dare to go in the stall to get them out because they'd be rearing and pawing and striking at you. So I saw them take these two stallions and in three or four hours have them looking like puppy dogs. And Joe was then riding them, you know, going around crossing his arms, letting them canter around on a halter and lead. And, what do you think uh, it was about them? Um, well, that's what I didn't know. I knew I had watched very intently the entire time them go through this process. And at the end of it, I did not know what Tom had done to create the change. And at that point, I was like smashing my head against a mirror. And I realized, oh, my God. Here I've been a trainer for all these years, and I'm missing something. Seriously, I have some serious holes. So Tom, at that point, just became like this amazing person because I, you know, I'd been around the block. I I knew a lot about horses and about training and about you know my craft, but I I couldn't explain what I had seen, and so. That was just sort of turned turn me upside down. Yeah. Yeah. And so what came next? So then I decided that, you know, I kind of kept trying to push my horse into, you know, this sort of show lane. And still dressage. Yeah. And still dressage. And then I just at one point saying, you know, I need, I need help. And so I called up Tom. I got his number. I called him up and I thought I'd, you know, get some kind of his publicist or something, you know, somebody who was, because, you know, I knew his that, person, by that, yeah. uh, by that point that he was, this, and he answers the phone. Mm. <laughs> and uh, he spent the next, like, 20 minutes trying to talk me out of coming down, because I said, you know, I really want to come down and work with you. I'm having some trouble with my horses, and I really want to come down. And then he gave me all the reasons why I didn't want to do that. Why do you think that was? Well, I think he was, like, testing me. He really didn't want people who weren't ready because the way he works with a person and, and a horse is very different than our, you know, formulaic 
teaching style that we all grow up with in schools. And, you know, it's not about learning all these skills tricks. and all these tricks to memorize and regurgitate. It's about learning to see and be with the horse where that horse is right now. Yeah, I think that that sort of practice is more of a lifestyle than a yes. lesson in my understanding of all of it, whether it's him or Mark Rashid, if you know him, mm -hmm. people like that, I feel like it's a, it's a practice and it's a doing the work more than a one and done lesson. Now I figured it out. Absolutely. I don't know if you've given yourself credit to finally surrender to the like, I need help because I feel like in the horse world, but just in general, surrendering to the I can't do this myself or this isn't working is a huge thing. It is a huge thing. And I still struggle with that. I still, in all of these different areas of my life, I still struggle with that. It's hard so to ask for help. It really is. It really is. Yeah. And yeah. so you did go down to him. I did. And then I ended up over the next 10 years taking every horse that I had in training down. And yeah, where was he exactly? He was in Gustine at that time at the Westwind Ranch owned by Winnie Lotta. Okay, and how far and from Sonoma County is that? It was about three and a half hours. Okay, so not too far. Hours. Yeah. So just, he became your mentor, essentially. Yes. Yeah, and not just with the horses. He really helped me with my life. I had a lot of trouble that came from my upbringing, and he... Shown you the mirror. Yeah, he sure did. And just set an example of the father or the grandfather I would have always wanted. And um, yeah, it was such a, a wonderful example for me. Yeah, and I feel like teachers like that, they mm -hmm. live what they're teaching. Yes. It's not that they're one thing in the arena and then they go home and have this other life. They yeah. are who they teach. Exactly. And yeah. they're practicing what they teach. Exactly. Yeah, and so what is kind of the most profound experience that you had with him, if you want to talk about that? I'm sure there are many. Oh, gosh. <laughs> the thing about working with Tom for me was that the inroad into my psyche and my habits and my all the paradigms and the theories and the things that I lived my life by the inroad into all of those things was so slow and incremental that at the time I, you know, was not often aware of the changes until some time had gone by. And then all of a sudden I'd realized I'm not doing the same thing in the same way anymore. And it was kind of like at one point I realized it's not really like a lot of ahas, although there were some of those moments, like, oh, right, I get that. It wasn't usually like that. It was like, oh, this is kind of like a, like the way a flower opens up, just so softly and quietly. And, you know, you don't see it opening, but then you come back two days later and it's in a different place. And that's sort of what it felt like. There were a lot of just significant moments, but in general, that's that's kind of how it was. And when you would bring horses to him, would it look like him working with the horse, you working with the horse, and him observing? Like, what did that kind of look like? Most of the time, he would be sitting in his golf cart, 
And I would either be in the little pipe arena or I'd be out in the field or I'd be down in the riverbed and he'd be, you know, sitting with his feet up, our kind of arms crossed and he'd just be watching. And he'd say, well, go ride down in that riverbank. And then, you know, some minutes would go by and I'd be looking up like, are you going to tell me to do something? And I'm going, you know, well, gosh, my horse seems to be tripping a lot. <laughs> and he'd go, and he might nod. Yeah. And so mostly silences. Mostly he'd just send me out somewhere and then maybe then call me back and then say, well, now go down here and then call me back. And I could feel his eyes on him. It wasn't like he was... He's seeing everything. Oh, he's seeing everything. But he's telling me very little. And so that made me have to address, like, all of the insecurities. Like, am I doing it right? What am I supposed to be doing now? Or I'm paying um, you. I want you to tell you. Right, tell me yeah, more. Why isn't he telling me what? Am I like... Am I like so stupid that he doesn't think I'm worth like expending mm. any energy? You know, all of those old, you know, has tapes. nothing to do with horses. No, it's yes. your stuff. Yes, it's all the baggage, all the baggage from forever. And that's what I, you know, took yeah. from it. Yeah. I feel like that way of teaching is so much where us as individuals have the answers. And Yes, they might help you along the way of finding those answers. Mm -hmm. But saying so little and then you finding, like he knows your horse was tripping. He doesn't have to tell you that he sees it. Exactly. He doesn't need to tell you that your horse is uncomfortable with that bush over there or whatever. He sees it all. But because you're being watched by someone like him, a mentor and mm -hmm. someone you appreciate to almost have a soundboard. Yes. I feel like those kind of teachers allow us to find the answer within ourselves, which is the ultimate goal, yes. right? We don't right. want so we don't want to have to rely on this other person. Eventually, ideally, you get sent off and work on it on your own time. Right, exactly. And so I think that the minimal words is pretty yes. amazing. Yeah. You know, it's like everybody would go down to work with Tom because he was a living legend by that time. But then secretly, you know, I'd hear people talk about, you know, like at a clinic, when we were in the line to get food, you know, at a, like a clinic, I'd hear people say, yeah, Tom's great, but he's such a poor communicator. He doesn't know how to explain things. You know, they didn't realize he did it on purpose. This wasn't something that he just couldn't, you know, find the words for. He did that, all that on purpose. When somebody would ask him about it, he would say, well, if I give you the answer, you won't remember it, but if you find it, you're gonna that's gonna stick with you forever. What a teacher. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. And he had had books and stuff already out, I'm guessing. Yes, by yes this he point. did. Yeah. What did your journey look mm -hmm. like next? I've always been interested in writing and so I started writing articles about my experiences. With uh, him with, specifically? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I wrote a book that was actually published after he had passed away. And was yeah. the book like centered around him as well? Yes. It and was, your experiences yes, with him? Yes, it was my story, even though I wrote it as, a fi as fiction, because I wrote about members of my family who didn't ask to be written about. I changed everybody's names. Of course. I changed timeline. You know, I didn't want... It was it, based on yes. your life, but... Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And what was that like, coming out with your first book? 
Ah, uh, that was scary. The writing of it was extremely hard and therapeutic. It took me 13 years to finish it. And what was your process like? Would you go away to write? Would you recluse? Would you? When I started it, it started to be about a how-to book on training horses. And then at some point after I had, you know, a stack of notes, and I would carry around a tape recorder. So I'd bring it to work. And every time something interesting happened with the horses or one of my students, I just you know, talk into it. And then I transcribed it all out. And I, you know, ended up with like a stack of papers that I still have. But then after a few years of doing that, I thought, I am totally bored by reading how to books on horses, because they don't really help. I said, so why would I want to write one? And I thought, you know, it would be much more interesting to tell a story and have people learn from the story and, you know, have it be an interesting story and have it learn from the story. And so that's when then I started to write down what my experiences actually were and what actually happened, what that was like, you know, going through that process. And I wove in all of my, you know, personal details. So when it finally came out to be, you know, published, uh, it was pretty scary because I'm thinking, wow, there's a lot of personal stuff in there. It's, vo- it's very vulnerable. It sounds yes. like it was a bit of a memoir yes. book. Yeah. A fictional yeah. memoir. Yes, exactly. How did you get through the nervousness when it did come out? You know, I just I just believed in it so much. There was kind of a fire in my belly feeling. And I just felt like it needed to be, you know, my students had been asking for a book for years and years. And so I, I wanted it for them. And then for anybody else, I thought, you know, there are a lot of people with kind of, you know, difficult upbringings. And, you know, this is not just for horse people. This could be for anybody. And I thought if it helps somebody, it should be out there. And, you know, unless you're willing to be vulnerable and personal, you don't really touch other people. And so, yeah, that's what kind of that was my motivation. Yeah, that's good motivation. Is there a specific part in the book that stands out to you the most that was the most vulnerable that you would like to talk about a little bit? I had a lot of PTSD from my childhood. And that was a real significant, you know, I've always had a really good memory. I've always remembered a lot of things like my, my sisters and brother. Pros and cons with that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They, they used to always like, how do you remember all that? But all of my memories were, were without emotion. Like I remembered the pictures. I remembered things happening. Almost like it wasn't your story. It wasn't my story. I, you know, I had the, and when I started working with Tom, I, the feeling started to come up. That was very traumatic because then the memories became real and very just difficult, like nightmares. And so, and then, you know, but I was used to being able to stuff stuff down. And so there was this war going on with me about stuffing it down, letting it out. And then as it started to come out, then I'd have these panic attacks. And fortunately, I was in therapy at the time with a therapist who actually was really good and was really helping me. Awesome. And so between Tom and her, <laughs> but that was, you know, a few years working through that, that part of it. You know, for me, it was about learning to tolerate discomfort. You know, working with Tom was about tolerating all the things I didn't want things to be. That's what life was, was everything I didn't want it to be, was everything I tried not to make it be. And so learning to just sit with what was, he was so good at helping people 
learn to do that with their horses. And then, of course, that for me, it just transferred into my personal life. Yeah, what a great mentor. So how far along in your journey did you get with him into, before he passed? Fortunately, I mean, I, I was really sad. I knew that he didn't have a long time to, to live. And um, fortunately, I got down to see him just a couple of weeks before he passed and had a wonderful conversation, had a wonderful conversation with him on the phone. But by the time he passed, I felt like I was at the point that if something came up for me, either in my personal life or with the horses, that I didn't have the answer to, it was okay. I knew where to look. For me, I felt like it was just self-empowerment that I felt like I had the confidence. I didn't need to know the answer. It was okay. Which is exactly um, what his teachings are, is you becoming the answer and having the answer. Yes, and just being okay with looking. And when I realized I could drop needing to know the answer, then the search became so much fun. It was like a big, everything was always a big exploration. Well, and sometimes there is no answer. Yeah. Or maybe there's an answer for this moment, and then it passes and it evolves into something else. So the exploration just became the thrill. Yeah, I think part of that, too, is surrendering to control to lack of control, that's kind of the journey that I'm on right now with a lot of different facets of my life is like understanding that I don't have control of the next housing situation I'm going to be in or if my horse is going to live 10 years Mm -hmm. longer or just all of that if I'm going to have my boyfriend for the rest of my life, like any of that stuff, there is no control. There is here and now and there is moments where I can set myself up or my horse up to have the supplements or have the healthy lifestyle or workout or different things. But inevitably, even the healthiest of people get in car wrecks or healthiest of horses colic or there's so many variables that truth, truly, I feel like the ultimate way of being and that peace that we're looking for is Mm -hmm. giving up control and understanding that Right here, right now, I am safe. I am healthy. My horse is safe and he is healthy and go to sleep. That's I've been doing that every night recently where I show gratitude to myself that my horse is healthy. I'm healthy. My boyfriend, my mom, you know, nice giving that gratitude because, yeah, there's no we have no control. And as humans, whether you went through trauma as a kid or not, like there is this control factor because mm-hmm. we think that it is safety in control, but exactly. it's false. That's right. It's all false. That's and COVID right. brought that up for a lot of people. Exactly. I think that that's, yeah. and that's really cool that you found a mentor to yeah. do that. And that you found that in yourself prior to him passing. Yes. I was so, that talk about gratitude. I was so grateful because for years... I would say, what am I going to do if Tom dies? <laughs> like, what What am I going to do? Like, I was just... That's the I control. That's, yes. the, That's the, right. the control of yeah. putting your faith into somebody else or something else yeah. instead of, yes. I will be okay. Yes, Then exactly. the next chapter of life will start. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So did you, it sounds like you continued a training program, but in a different way, you weren't as show oriented. Completely. Yeah. I still like to work with my students who like to show. And I, I think that it's great if I have a student that wants to show it done a different way. For me now, it's, 
unless the horse is in a good place uh, and happy with its work and enjoying its work, just not going to happen. Yeah. And why do you think people come to you for your training program? I think most people who come to me are people who have situations that other people have given up on. And so they may have heard about me, you know, from somebody who was in a similar situation. I do have really long-time students who it just seems to fit. You know, I, I often tell my students how brave I think they are because, you know, I'm not a cookie-cutter trainer, and it takes a certain amount of willingness to be uncomfortable in order to really find something of more depth and to be able to accept the horse where they are and not where you want them to be or where you think they should be. I mean, I have an outdated website, but I otherwise don't advertise at all because I, I want to make sure that people who choose to work with me know what they're getting into. I guess kind of, you know, a little bit like Tom. You know, I think I talk a little more than Tom. I, ex I do explain some things a little more than Tom did. So I'm somewhere kind of in the middle. But still, a student can go on for quite a while and have me not say anything. And so... <laughs> and then may maybe in your tactic, you explain why you're not saying yes, something, whereas Tom wouldn't exactly. explain it. Exactly. Yeah. Do you feel as though you're still dressage focused or it's more this... Yeah, I do think I'm dressage focused. Most of my students are interested in dressage. It's not about learning movements for the movement's sake or to be able to go to a show and win a ribbon. It's about really understanding why the movements and how the movements themselves, why they were devised in the first place. I mean, they were created in order to help someone understand how to move a horse up into this carriage of collection and gymnastic ability they weren't just movements so that you could say oh i can do a shoulder in oh i can do three tempies oh i can do you know a pair counter pirouette there's history yeah there's a history and there's a reason behind it and so you don't use the movements i just hardly ever use movements anymore or i use a very loose way of introducing people into the the movements because they're not the end goal they're the means why were you drawn to german dressage techniques mm -hmm. rather than french or you know anything else because i wanted to win and the germans were the best and also the trainer that i had there were a lot of good things about him he had a real sincere interest in helping his students and he put a lot of effort and energy he wasn't just you know, doing it for the money, doing it or? for the money. Yeah, no, he really, he really was. And so I was attracted to that. And as a trainer, do you have a training facility or do you go to people locally? So I do a once a month clinic here in Northern California in Gilroy. And then students that want to work with me can trailer in. I still, I was a full-time trainer at Flying Cloud Farm across town. Students can still meet me there, trailer in there. And if they're, they live locally enough, I will go to them. So if they're in kind of in the neighborhood, I'll, I'll go to them. So that's, I kind of have a little bit of a mix. That's awesome. Yeah. If someone was curious about your book, what's it called? Ah, it's called Finding Pegasus. And anybody who would like a copy, I'm happy to. Um, they can either find it on my website. I also gift a lot of copies. Happy to 
Love that. Yeah. And do you want to talk about why you named it Finding yes, Pegasus? Yes, Finding Pegasus. Well, I knew I wanted to have it relate to the story of Pegasus. And I have a little little sort of Explanation. Forward. Yeah, a little sort of magical forward in the book about about that. And so I was, you know, trying to think of different names. And it was actually my neighbor. It was actually um, the owner of this property who had read it, read the draft. And he just said, oh, this is about finding Pegasus. Yeah, well, and it's cool in that moment because not only are you, is this person, you're bringing this person into something that mm -hmm. means so much to you. But they have a little piece of it now because they helped you with finding yes. the title of it. Yes, exactly. So I think that's yeah. kind of the fun of bringing friends or relatives or anyone into something yes. that you've been working towards. Yes, I had a lot of people read my rough drafts. Yeah. yeah. Is that the only book you've had or you've had yeah. more? No, that's the only one. People Are keep asking me about a sequel. Yeah, it's always been my plan, but I just don't have time right now to do any writing. And so I miss it. Yeah. I miss it. And so before recording, we talked a little bit about agriculture. Do you yes. want to talk about that part of your life? Yeah, sure. So my sort of focus now is in blending my passion for horses and also for nature. And there is a movement going on now, not just in the United States, but around the world. I'm very concerned about the state of the planet and the climate. And, you know, I just see such land loss and such species mass extinction and loss of habitat and so I have always volunteered for about the last 20 some years I volunteered for a local nonprofit here in Petaluma called Daily Acts and I run organize and run workshops and webinars through them using their platform but I offer them for free on regenerative land management workshops and webinars and also sustainable equine management workshops and try to help people understand how they can, even if they own just a less than a quarter acre plot or whether they have a thousand acres, what they, some of the things that they can do, some of the low tech, low cost things that can be done to help regenerate or restore the land so that it's better able to infiltrate rainwater, recharge the groundwater, sequester carbon. Help the bees. You help the bees. All of that. Yeah. And where did you get your knowledge about all of that? Well, I met a guy through the, an RCD, or Resource Conservation District work, workshop, a number of years ago. And the man leading that was a man named Richard King, and he lives here in town. He's a rancher here. And he worked for the NRCS, Natural Resources Conservation Service, for 36 years. And he's a rancher himself, and he also has certifications in Alan Savory's method of holistic land management. And he's done just a whole lot. He knows a whole lot. So I took this workshop that he was giving, and I said... If I organize this whole thing and put out these flyers and run this thing, will you come and teach? And he said, fine. And he said, I'll do it for free because I can get a grant to help pay for my time. And that's what we do. So we offer it to the community at no cost. And it's also, you know, supported by the Daily Acts organization. And we run, we run these workshops. And I work with the RCD and the water boards and the NRCS as well. And we combine our efforts and put on these workshops. That's really cool. 
Yeah. And what do you think is the hardest part about all of that? Coordinating everything, designing the flyer, getting the word out, doing all the behind scenes. The organization, Daily Acts, uses a particular platform that I have to input all the stuff onto and then keep track of all the data that comes in. And that's the, that's the stuff. It's not the workshop itself. That's the joy. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's the part that brings it all together and yeah. why it's worth doing exactly. all of it. Exactly. And then Richard helped us set up. I co-manage with my three neighbors that are have adjoining properties, and we co-manage a regenerative land management thing. We rotate sheep, goats, and cattle through our four properties. We've been doing that for about six or seven years now. Our property slopes about a thir 30 degrees down to the road, and I used to stand up at the top in the middle of a rainstorm and watch the water just sheet off the soil and run right down the street. Which is not a good thing. No, it's not a good thing. Well, last year was the first year and we had that big seven inches of rain in 24 hours. And we did not have one inch of runoff. We sank every bit of that rainfall. So we had about 20, 21 inches that year. And that, I. Uh, did all the calculations and it was over 3,250,000 gallons of water that we sunk back into the aquifer just on six acres. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that would be so beneficial for so many properties around here because personally I live on a property where my landlord has to build a river through her property because especially last year with how much rain we got, it comes through. And last year, unfortunately, her river didn't even do as much as she would have liked because of all the gophers. Oh, right. So the gophers rerouted all of the water. <laughs> yes. But it makes so much sense that ideally you don't, yes, you need the water to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. But ideally, you want it to go down into the earth. You That's don't want right. it to go down into the street or the next property or exactly. the pond across the street. You, know, you want to keep it. You want to keep it. And then, you know, a lot of our neighbors' wells are going dry. They're trucking in water. And oh, right. You're into knock, rockware. Yep. Not knock on wood. We still have a great well. Yeah. But you're doing the work. Yes. Yeah. And learning in the process. Yeah. That's the thing. I'm just learning about, well, how do you build a soil structure that actually can infiltrate water? And what's all that about? Especially when the water comes in so quickly. Yes, exactly. So what's, what's something, advice, like a simple... The simple little piece of advice that you can give, like the average property owner, that can kind of be the first step in that. Well, I think what I would say, because everybody's situation is so different, it's hard to name one thing. But what I can say is, no matter where you live, on what kind of soil you have, there's a lot you can do on a tiny little plot. And if you're interested, all of those webinars that I've put on are now for free online and just go to the Daily Axe organization and look up the webinars on, you know, there's a bunch of them. I've done a lot on building swales and all about how to manage horses on properties and grazers. And there's all kinds of free stuff online that they can watch and get ideas. From. It's just educating yes. yourself. Yes. It's just educating. Yeah. Spending the yeah. time to educate. Awesome. Is there anything within your trajectory that you want to make sure you talk about that you haven't yet? I guess what I want to put out there, just so people have it in their minds, I listen to a lot of the California State Water Commission webinars. You know, they do their meetings on webinars. You can watch them. And then they allow comments. 
And I hear them talk a lot about building these multi-million dollar water catchment systems to try and, you know, everybody's looking for ways to solve the drought situation in California and the Western United States. And to me, the answer is in getting the millions of acres that we have of land that we have, getting people to understand these simple changes they can do to help sequester or infiltrate rainwater. And it's the low tech stuff, but the low tech done by a lot of people. And I suggested that to the water commission one time, instead of thinking of spending all of these multi-millions of dollars building these water catchment systems that aren't gonna solve the problem, what about helping educate just the common person and helping them understand what they can do, what little simple things they can do to help infiltrate their water that falls on their property. And so they sort of didn't even know what I was talking about. And so to me, that is the most horrifying lack of information that's out there right now. So that's what I just want to put out, is that it's possible. We can solve the water problem. Way more water falls every year, even when we're only getting seven inches of rain. It's still more water than we use, than all of the state of California uses. If we would just be able to capture it in the land, we would be fine. What's the best, you might have already said this, but what's the best place to educate themselves? Well, the um, webinars that I've done are on um, dailyacts.org website. And it's daily A-C-T-S, not A-X-E, but <laughs> D-A-I-L-Y-A-C-T-S dot org. And then there are all kinds of, depending on what people are interested in, there are all kinds of people doing amazing, amazing work all around the country so you could Google regenerative land management. Man, you'll come up with just a lot of stuff. There are a lot of TED Talks on this stuff. At the Alan Savory TED Talk, Gabe Brown is another amazing rancher in North Dakota. He's doing just a lot of wonderful work. Yeah, I think sometimes the Googling, that's why I like specifics, the Googling mm -hmm. and then the abundance Yes. of information and not yes. all of it is accurate and well, not all of right. it is that's so true. so sometimes yeah. yeah having the specifics, yeah, specific. which you gave yeah. is awesome and ted talks are great because yeah. not everyone wants to read sometimes yes. listening is great while yes. we're mucking or exactly yeah exactly and they're like limited to 18 minutes so you don't have to spend you know four hours <laughs> yeah listening yeah yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, let's go into the question, and you might have already talked about this, but what is something within the community that you'd like to see evolve or change, and then how can you help with that if you're not already? Well, I think this whole idea, you know, the group that I'm working with would like to find a way to purchase land for people who want to set an example and work the land in a regenerative, restorative way, to put that land into trust, take it off the speculative market, and sell shares so that people who normally can't afford to live on land can live on land and do something really great with it and set an example. So that's one of the things I'd like to see. I'd like to see us be able to sort of influence our economic structure in that way and, and let people know there, there are alternatives. You know, there are ways, if you don't have a lot of money, there are ways to have a good life. And still promote yes. healing for the planet. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. and you're living this with the property you're on and yeah. the educating that you're doing. So yeah, 
Awesome. Yeah. And so now you get to ask me one question. One thing that did occur to me, how did you, That one of the first things you said to me was that you want to try and set up kind of, a, you know, have fine land and set up a cooperative type situation on that land. And so how did you come to that? It's a pretty new thing for me to even want to own property. Um, and it was influenced by my boyfriend. But I have had an awesome opportunity a few times to live on properties where someone else owns it and there's a little bit of like a co-op feel. Currently, I live on a property where it's 10 acres, landlord lives there, I live there, and then another girl lives there. And then the horses are there as well and there's some donkeys and, you know, all the other animals. And I just love that because I have my own space, I live in my own space, but I'm not alone. There's other people where if there was an, an emergency, if I didn't show up at night for multiple nights in a row and didn't let them know, they would notice. If I need to go on a work trip and my horse needs to be fed, there's somebody there because someone's feeding the other horses, you know? So I love that aspect. And I, in general, am just a, I love community and I love networking and I love having someone's back and someone having mine, not necessarily in a way where I only have their back if they have mine, but in a way where it just community, where we all can work together. And I've had other opportunities where my landlords weren't so nice or kicked me out for different reasons. Or, you know, I have a friend struggling with that currently. And so being a landlord that's understanding and forgiving and we can grow together, I'm really hopeful that I am able to like offer that opportunity and just affordable housing right now. Like I have affordable housing in this county where it's not affordable anymore. Exactly. Like the common person, especially, you know, not even my age, but just working for myself, I don't make an abundance of money. I never will. But I make enough to get by and I make enough to where I love my life. I don't have to be a slave to work, and I prefer life that way. Even if I don't have a bunch of money to go off and vacation or to go off and do all these things, I enjoy my day-to-day, -day, mm -hmm. and that has always meant a lot to me. And so having affordable housing where you don't necessarily, as a landlord, need to make money from these people living on the land, but you pay off a little bit of your mortgage with this rent or, you know, whatever it is that it goes back to. But I think that that is something that is really needed, not only in Sonoma County, but just anywhere that people are getting priced out everywhere. So I've had that opportunity to have affordable housing for the last three years. And so I'd like to give that back to somebody as well nice. because it's meant a lot to me. Nice. It's given me the opportunity to buy a truck and a trailer so that I can take my horse trail riding or have an evacuation plan and all of that. So Nice. Yeah, that's a good question. Nice. Awesome. Well, yeah. thank you so much for chatting with me. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Hello again, and thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of Stable Connections, the podcast. This is your host, Shauna Burke, and if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to tune in every Monday morning for a new episode. Follow us on Facebook and on Instagram. It always helps to leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on Facebook. 
And if you or someone you know wants to sponsor an episode, please visit www.stableconnectionsthepodcast.com. See you next week. Stable Connections is sponsored by Change Your Lead. Change Your Lead is made up of a group of licensed clinicians and equine professionals who incorporate horses into mental health treatment and wellness offerings. They currently provide adjunct psychotherapy services to agencies in the greater Bay Area that want to add an equine component to their existing mental health services. In addition, they facilitate workshops and mini wellness retreats for those looking to take time for themselves in the presence of horses. Please visit changeyourlead.com to learn more. Stable Connections is sponsored by The Equine Creative. The Equine Creative is a full-service graphic design company specializing in logos and branding for equestrian entrepreneurs. With illustrations that honor your heart, your horse, and your hustle, let's outfit your business the way you'd outfit your horse. Please visit www.theequinecreative.com to learn more.